Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Tyrant Books, publisher of Pets, an anthology. It's edited by Jordan Castro. It features fiction, poetry, and essays about pets ranging from cats and dogs to an ex-racehorse and dead chickens. Contributors include Ann Beatty, Christine Scott, Tao Lin, Scott McClanahan, Chelsea Hodson, Sarah Manguso, and more. Pets, an anthology available now from Tyrant Books. Hey everybody, how you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing well out there, wherever you are. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're taking care of yourself. I hope you're taking care of uh, the people around you. I hope you're wearing a mask when you're out in public. Please wear a mask. That's my public service announcement for the day. Even if you're in some place where the numbers are not ticking up right now with coronavirus wear a mask because if you don't, then the numbers are going to tick up. Like it's coming for you too. And don't think otherwise. Don't be fooled. Like, am I a scold? I like, I don't mean to be. It just seems like such craziness when I'm out in Los Angeles and I'm looking around and so many people are not wearing masks and I don't get it. I don't get the logic. Like it just doesn't apply to you. Like this doesn't, the virus doesn't apply to you. You're not part of this. I'm just not going to be bothered. I don't care if I kill somebody. <laughs> I mean, it really is a window. Is it not into humanity and the way people process things? Like I get, it's not like the best look. It's a little bit uh, awkward to wear a mask, especially in the heat. I understand that it can be a little bit inconvenient. But we shouldn't be debating about this, and it shouldn't be political. It's a public health issue. It applies to everybody. My God. Anyway, that's my rant for the day. My guest today is Natalie Diaz. She is a poet, and she has a new collection out called Postcolonial Love Poem. It is available from Grey Wolf Press. And it is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Postcolonial Love Poem is one of the most critically acclaimed poetry collections of the year. 
And uh, just a thrill to talk to Natalie and to catch her as this one makes its way out into the world. I think there's some real magic to this collection and uh, just a very gifted writer. So I thought it would make sense to begin today's episode by hearing from Natalie herself, to hear her read uh, a poem from her collection. And in fact, she reads the uh, title, uh, the title poem for us. And you're going to hear that now. So this is Natalie Diaz reading her poem entitled Postcolonial Love Poem from her collection titled Postcolonial Love Poem. This is Natalie Diaz. I've been taught bloodstones can cure a snake bite, can stop the bleeding. Most people forgot this when the war ended. The war ended depending on which war you mean. Those we started before those millennia ago and onward those which started me, which I lost and won, these ever-blooming wounds. I was built by wage, so I wage love and worse. Always another campaign to march across a desert night for the cannon flash of your pale skin, settling in a silver lagoon of smoke at your breast. I dismount my dark horse, bend to you there, deliver you the hard pool of all my thirst. I learn drink in a country of drought. We pleasure to hurt, leave marks the size of stones, each a cabochon polished by our mouths. I, your lapidary, your lapidary wheel turning green, mottled red, the jaspers of our desires. There are wildflowers in my desert which take up to twenty years to bloom. The seeds sleep like geodes beneath hot feldspar sand until a flash flood bolts the arroyo, lifting them in its copper current, opens them with memory. They remember what their god whispered into their ribs. Wake up and ache for your life. Where your hands have been are diamonds on my shoulders, down my back. Thighs. I am your culebra. I am in the dirt for you. Your hips are quartz light and dangerous. Two rose horned rams ascending a soft desert wash before the November sky untethers a hundred year flood. The desert returns suddenly to its ancient sea. Arise the wild heliotrope, scorpion weed, blue phacelia, which hold purple the way a throat can hold the shape of any great hand. Great hands is what she called mine. The rain will eventually come or not. Until then, we touch our bodies like wounds. The war never ended and somehow begins again. All right, that is Natalie Diaz reading her poem entitled Postcolonial Love Poem from her collection entitled Postcolonial Love Poem, available now from Grey Wolf Press. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And it's my pleasure to share this conversation with you now. Here she is, folks. This is Natalie Diaz, and her collection, one more time, is called Postcolonial Love Poem. There are songs, like I, Mojave songs that I know that I sing with my elder. But, and I'm, I'm a really good, uh, I can mimic voices really well. And so, um, but my register is often like, Kenny Rogers and uh, <laughs> Randy Travis and Neil Diamond, like all these uh, older white guys. So I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> wait, so wait, you can like you can do a Kenny Rogers impression? 
Uh, I do a lot. I'm not going to do them. I'm not going to do them here. But yeah, those are my those are my go to uh, go to songs. <laughs> really? I do a little Billy Joel every now and again too. It's a different, a little bit different register though. But Billy Joel was big for me. A Midwestern, you know, guy from the suburbs in uh, Indiana. For some reason, I, there's some common experience I feel like among. You know, yeah. boys my age. I'm I'm a little just I'm just a little bit older than you, but like, why was Billy Joel like? I mean, he like completely obsessed me when I was like in sixth grade. You know, Wild. yeah, yeah. The first uh, the first group, my cousins had MTV. We never had cable, but I had a, a a set of cousins who lived across the way, and so we would you know we'd always beg to go over there because they had cable. My mom didn't like us to go over there because she said we shouldn't be watching cable. But I saw MTV for the very first time. And uh, Wham was on. That was the very first group I ever saw on, um, yeah, the Jitterbug. Wake me me up. Yeah. (laughs) Listen, I'll tell you this. My wife is a huge George Michael fan. And, you know, here's the thing about it. I'm a huge George Michael fan. I never really realized the degree to which I'm a huge George Michael fan until I went to Vegas. Uh, My wife was like, we're going to Vegas. We're going to see George Michael in concert with uh, some of my friends and we went and it's one of the best concerts I ever saw. I was amazed. I was like completely into it and I knew every song, you know, that was like one of the things that dawned yeah. on me and it was just, uh, it was fantastic. Yeah. We never gave, I mean, he just never, well, George Michael in particular just never received the credit for like what he was making us capable of or the capacity he gave us without outright telling us, you know, what is gender? What is queerness? You know, so I, I think it's incredible that we were all so compelled by him and and weren't told yet what questions we should be asking that were divisive. And so we simply loved him, loved the music. And then suddenly, um, yeah, it's I think he's an incredible like person to think about what his impact was yeah did you see the documentary on uh showtime i think it was there was a documentary that was made about him after he passed away and it was really good i, I was oh uh, yeah i haven't i haven't but what a tragic like you know so many tragic turns for him yeah afterward and the way just the way the public treated him was unbelievable yeah 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 but i mean like but there was also such a huge such a huge amount of affection for him uh I guess maybe sometimes these things come into sharper focus after a person passes away. You know, we kind of realize yeah. realize what we've lost. But he was uh, he was he was a great talent. Uh, and I guess I want to before we get too far into this conversation, I feel like obligated to congratulate you on the incredible reception uh, that postcolonial love poem has received. Like I was reading the uh, the New York Times review, like that you know the 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 salient blurb from the New York times review. And then the, uh, you couple that with like the MacArthur grant, like as a writer, I'm thinking to myself, like she, she did it. It's, it's over. (laughs) She, I mean, like it's quite an achievement, um, and quite a reception for your work. So I just, I want to congratulate you. Oh, gracias. I was, I was, you know, Amelia Phillips was the writer who did the New York times review and she's just an incredible, uh, you know, person out in the the writing world and writing community. I know a lot of people who who know her and who speak so well of her. I know her work. Um, so just you know, it's lucky. I think things are so subjective 
you know, like what people say is good or what speaks to certain people. Um, so I don't ever put a whole lot of uh, weight into some of those things. I do think they are really lucky, and it's it's great to be able to see my work in certain conversations. So. Yeah, well, I mean, that's... Uh... There's a lot of humility in that, but it's an awesome, I, mean, I don't know, it's, it's, it's awesome to see a poetry collection um, hailed like that in, I don't know, it's, it feels like a rare thing. No comment. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> my Mojave-ness came out. I just kind of put my head down. And <laughs> yeah, no, I don't mean to. I don't mean to. I don't mean to put you on the spot or embarrass you. I just like I. I read a lot of reviews, and I obviously talk to a lot of authors, and I feel like I have a, a sensitivity, like a, an antenna, you know, for when a, a, a book is really resonating, and I get that sense with this one. So, for what it's worth. No, great. I appreciate it. I, I took a while with it, so that's that's unusual, I think, in in American poetry. To what? To to, to spend a lot of time on on the book? To or? take time. Yeah, I think you know we're we're a fast uh, we're a fast contemporary culture. I think right now, um, I'm even thinking just across the last twenty twenty five years, just how quickly we churn out books. And I mean, I'm not saying that with any kind of value judgment. It's just you know. I know after my first book came out, I was just asked every every year, is your next book ready? Let's do your next book. Where's your next book? And and I had no real desire to try to rush things that, you know, my first book was still in conversations with people. And I'm, I think I was still trying to figure out, and, and maybe I will always do this, but, you know, what is a book? Like, what is my book? What does it mean that these poems are in the same place together that I'm calling it a book. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it is nice that after, you know, taking the time I did that, you know, there's still a place there. I think sometimes younger poets or poets of my generation anyway, tend to, you know, we're afraid of, we'll be forgotten. You know, we're afraid, like if I'm not here in the middle, if I'm not making myself visible, if I'm not, saying or doing then I might lose my worth or they might forget about my work or um and it creates these strange energies that I feel like I'm always trying to notice and avoid and the ways I was able to build this book I think feel feel good to me there is a lot of uh, you know good patient uh caring generous energy put into it how long did you work on it I think there's there's one poem. There are two poems in this book that I was writing while I was writing when my brother was an Aztec. Otherwise, um, I mean, basically, I've just been writing since then. So I think when my brother was an Aztec came out in 2012. So I've just been writing along the way. The, the last poem I wrote in this book was uh, I Minotaur. And it's the poem I, it's a poem that I just feel close to because it's asking questions uh, that I'm, it's, it's part of the new set of inquiries, I think. It's part of the new wonders that I'm having were in that, that poem. But otherwise, they stretched across, you know, from maybe 2011 all the way until, you know, right before it came out. Grey Wolf was incredible to work with. 
and, you know, patient and also like urging, um, Jeff shots and chance Errolin were really great. I'd never been edited before. I wasn't edited with the first book. And so to have someone asking me questions about my poems, it was, uh, yeah, it's just a generosity. I think that relationship with an editor is one of extreme generosity. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I feel, uh, I feel like, like the the feeling I, I sometimes get when somebody edits my work or I have a friend who's a writer give it like a really close read is this feeling of being saved but saved from myself. <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of the direct the directive I give people like just please save me from myself like tell me what this is you know and uh, yeah. but I feel like with poetry I guess it would like a, a, I can, I'm just imagining this but when you get editorial notes on a poem. I mean, I guess it's kind of the same for prose, but you just like, I'm imagining it comes in the form of inquiry. Like you're getting questions from somebody who might find themselves. Do do you know what I'm saying? Like what kinds of editorial feedback were you getting? Can you think of a specific instance or a general type of feedback that you were getting that was instructive or helpful? Yeah. Sometimes just a question of like, what was your intention here? Um, I think uh, Jeff, Jeff was really great. There are some poems that, uh, I think Jeff is really good about noticing like the body. I I feel like the way my experience with Jeff Schatz editing my book was it's almost as if someone is taking the time and they're using their hands and just kind of touching the poem. And so they're able to find places that, you know, oh, okay, this is the muscle. This is, you know, this connects here. This is flexing this here. And so there were just some moments where Jeff pointed out to me, you know, you don't need, maybe you don't need to end it this way, or what if you were to end it here? Um, And I mean, what's crazy is those are, you know, those are typical revision techniques, like those are things poets usually take care of on their own. Hmm. But I know, like, even the the title poem, post-colonial love poem, it didn't end the way it ends now. And so, um, and I'm very, like, I'm very, like, textural, but somehow between like my eye my mouth and my ear there's that's the way language is for me so I don't typically separate those senses they tend they tend to be always at work in one another and so I I like to read from the book like I like touching paper I like the texture like I need that however I my poems are for the most part memorized and so it was it was really an experience to have someone come in after I've been with these poems for, you know, five, six years and to suggest or put pressure on some of these points and then to see them change and then to come back to them and to notice the difference, but also to see the newness of them. And so that was something that, that happened along the way um, with some of the, the edits. I like this. uh, I like this like editor as masseuse metaphor that we have going. (laughs) Yeah, masseuse might be too. (laughs) I might tilt the wrong direction, but um, but just uh, the the kind of carefulness. And I don't even mean like precision. I guess what I was trying to avoid was saying like it's like a precision. It's not like he had an exacto knife or a scalpel. But there's just a way that you know, like to read something and to allow it to be itself before you decide what you think it could be. Um, I think we, we would, we would expect that to be common, but I actually don't think it is. Um, and so there's a way that, that the editors at Grey Wolf let me be all of myself here Mm. and then took those poems and, 
you know, uh, were careful and intentional about them and asked some really important questions of them. Yeah, no, I, I, I think like at least part of what you're saying is that the editing is a, it's, I think it gets overlooked sometimes as a, as a skill unto itself, like a really good editor, um, is, uh, it's an amazing asset to any book, you know, and I wish I were better. I mean, I have some skill and facility. I think, I think most writers do for editing their own work, but there does come a time at which it can become a little bit blurry or you can, you know, you can just be too close to it after all that time. And it's so nice to have somebody who has that skill, be able to come in and assess it. And I think it has some, it's some kind of delicate dance where you're, like you said, you're allowing it to be itself um, and you're not necessarily imposing your will on it, but you're helping it maybe realize it, its best self. Like it's very, I don't know, it's, a, it's such a cool thing to be able to do. Yeah, and I mean, you have to have an incredible capacity, I would imagine, you know, like to be able to look at so many different like bodies of work and then to, to be able to hold hold them in a space, you know, their their own space, their own conditions, and then to... Yeah, I, th- I mean, it's a it's a skill, but I think there are, there's probably something also innate in that person. There's probably something about the way that person was built, or thinks, or imagines that that also plays into them being the kinds of editors they are. Yeah, like the phrase that's just popping into my head is like creative empathy. Like you're saying, like to be able to sort of accept all these different bodies of work on their own terms and to sort of be able to, um, I don't know, to, to, to read them and experience them without wanting to impose one's will on them, which I think is maybe something that I would do where I'd be like, this is the way I would do it if I were you, which is not what you should do. (laughs) Yeah. Or the opposite of empathy. I think empathy lets us believe we know what the other person thinks. And maybe that's, maybe that's a, so maybe it's the opposite of empathy. It's like, the editor didn't come in and say, "Oh, I know how you feel, so I'm gonna. I know what you. I know what you mean. I know how you feel, so now I'm gonna tell you what I would do in that situation." But to understand maybe that there there are things that there are experiences you've had, for example, that I I could never understand. I could try to relate my life to them, and yet I also have to be able to to let those be your experiences. You know. Mm. So um, maybe so maybe it's creative humility. Yeah, I don't know, but it, I was lucky for it. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever it is, uh, uh, Jeff and Chance have going on over there, I feel I feel really lucky for it because I, it, the book, feels good to me. Um, and can I ask you about the cover? Yeah, it's uh, so this is always the problem with, you know, being me or other people who have similar intersections of uh identity is uh i mean the reason why the the cover of when my brother was an aztec has my little brother on it and you know one of the when i received the first cover from the press and the press copper canyon was great about the cover uh one of the first images they gave me was um a beautiful beautiful photo of graciela iturbide um who's a you know mexican photographer whose work i love She's also, I mean, she's done work all over, but she's done some work in East L.A. Incredible photographer. And it was of, um, I think it was of like a Day of the Dead uh, celebration in Oaxaca. And so 
when they first sent me that and I, I didn't know yet what how like what it meant to be a writer or to have input in your book I mean I it suddenly just was you know the book was happening and I you know I immediately knew like the the people in that photo did not represent the people in my book you know Oaxaca is a very special place it has you know very particular people and stories and so we ended up using the picture of my brother because I thought you know this is these are the people who are in the book um, and so with this, with this cover, I knew, I mean, I already had that question in my mind is, you know, what would we do with the cover? How would we, how am I going to represent a queer native Mexican Spanish, you know, Latina speaker, like what body, you know, can represent that, um, and some of the early images they sent me were like mostly landscapes, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, and again, I must, it must be a difficult job on the other end to just take this book, read it, or re, you know, maybe they don't even read the full thing, skim through it, and suddenly think, okay, I have to match images here. Um, but I had been working on a self-portrait project um, for it was in response to it began in response to an Edward Curtis anniversary at the Hugo House in Seattle and they had asked me if I would like respond almost to his to Edward Curtis's work uh Edward Curtis you know of course took many photos of natives but he came down to to my land and took pictures of my people here both of my peoples the the Akamel Atham people in Phoenix area and also Mojave's here and he had posed them and and he had, you know, kept them very still and controlled what they were wearing and all of these things. And so this self-portrait project was a part of my, uh, I wanted it to not be a reaction to his work, but I wanted it to exist in its own space uh, in a way that could resist his work. And so... Uh, I created a series of self-portraits that were intentionally like out of focus, you know, trying to show movement, um, uh, making some choices about what, you know, which parts of, quote, the identity were allowed to be focused on. Uh, in these, I was playing a lot with the idea of the artifact. So I had some of my elders, um, my elders are beaters traditionally, so... As we're, you know, the, across the series, I'm wearing these different, uh, we call them collars and bracelets uh, in Mojave colors. And yeah, so I was just, I was really just trying to create a space. I think we're always stuck in that space. Is like, is everything I do, does it have to really be against something, against the country, against the nation, against invisibility? And so I was trying to... F- create a space where the conditions were different. And uh, Grey Wolf was really great. Um, Mary Mary Austin Speaker was the designer, and she was really wonderful to work with. And so I sent, and it was actually Jeff who had suggested to her. So they sent me some images that I, you know, so I, we began the conversation. And I was like, this is, you know, not necessarily what I'm thinking of, and this is how I feel about these images. And she you know, she'd asked, one of the designers asked, they said, well, Jeff said you've been working on uh, a series of portraits. Would you like to, you know, think about 
working with those. And so I sent them maybe three to five and yeah, and they were great. And then, you know, it was kind of great that they let me put the one on the back. Um, and it's, I mean, it sounds a little more like, uh, I guess, I don't know, like it, it's not as, uh, like tr- trivial as it sounds like, Oh, this happened. And then, you know, um, I think something that, that felt intentional about this whole process, like it's not necessarily like, like it was coincidental. I didn't like the first images. I happened to have these on hand, but it felt, it felt important to me that like the first body that I put at stake was my own. Um, I think that's the case through most of the book is that, uh, the speaker is the, the one with all the stakes, the one risking love and desire under the conditions of, you know, the country and the nation. And I mean, I say body a lot and I know a lot of people are like, we're not bodies, we're people, but in Mojave language, uh, body is the best word in English I can say to talk about the ways we actually think we exist, which is I'm, I'm a human. I'm a, I'm also a body of water. I'm also a body of land. So I use that word a lot. Well, I love the cover for what it's worth. I think there's, I always, I like it when I like the idea, I guess, at least of, of, um, a self, a self portrait, um, on the cover of a book that, is so intimate and personal. It doesn't happen as much as it should. Maybe I, I feel like there's something direct about it and beautiful. Yeah. There's some really great covers I think out there now. I think, um, uh, Cameron awkward rich has a, has a book out and, um, that has like a, an eye. And I think the eye is actually Denez Smith's eye. And then Justin Philip Reed's new book, I think is also, it might be just maybe it's not. I know there's yeah there are a few books out there with uh, I think with really intimate um, photographs on them. So. Hey everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called "Truth Is the Arrow, Mercy Is the Bow." a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, let's talk about, I want to talk about where you're from. Just like start, try to start at the beginning. Uh, you were born uh, in Needles, California. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, and you were born like, uh, like into, um, or onto the Mojave Reservation? Yeah, I grew up at Fort, so Fort Mojave was a former um, military fort 
and then it became a boarding school and then it became my reservation. We have, I mean, we're on California, Nevada and Arizona side. So I grew up on the California side. I now live on the Arizona side, but I grew up on the California side in Fort Mojave, um, which is on the edge of Needles, California and the Colorado River. So we're kind of like pinched on the edge. And I mean, of course, this was all Mojave land. We say Makav Amatinj, which is, you know, Mojave land. So this was all at one time, this entire uh, Colorado River basin. So I'm right on the Colorado River. So we grew up with it pretty much in our backyards, like literally in our backyard. Um, but yeah, and Needles is a little, a very tiny railroad town. It's um, famous for Spike, Snoopy's cousin, the little guy who always had like a cactus and a little mustache. Oh, right. Yeah, because Schultz used to, um, he used to come out and he was like a snowbird, I guess. So he would come out during the winters and and do work out here. So that's, uh, he imagined Spike while he spent time out here. And yeah, and I mean, another like, intro, like this is like, you know, Wyatt Earp's been through here. Houdini's wife was this I was fascinated by Houdini for several years but Houdini's wife uh died on a train and uh I think she was going from LA back east she died on a train and they took her body off at Needles you know here so there's some crazy little you know tidbits of of historical information here um and then of course did Charles Charles Schultz he he had a house in Needles yeah, I, I think it's like he had. So I don't know if the home is still there. I know the street he lived on is named like Schultz Lane or something. It's at the very edge of town. So it's actually on as you're on your way out of town. One of the directions we're off the I-40 freeway, too, but um, it's off of like 95. It's uh, yeah, it's like one of the last streets out there. I mean, now there it's like a big hydroponic plant by it because we're now like the tiniest weed capital in the desert, I think. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's something to be proud of. Uh, yeah. what about, okay. So you, you're, you're born there and raised on the, on the river, on the reservation. And like, what was, what was life like, you know, growing up? What did your parents do? Um, do you have siblings? Yeah, I have a really large family. So my father is a construction guy. He was all his life, concrete construction. So really hard work. It, the de- where we live, it really is hot. Like people don't, you know, we say it's hot, but it's easily in the 120s here. Ugh. Already we've been like 115, you know, and it's barely June. So it's going to be a rough summer, I think. And, um, but yeah, it's hot. So, that you know, my dad was often like up at 3 a.m. and done. They were done with their work by 11 or 12 because it, it was just too hot. Um, but my mother... When I was younger, my mother didn't work. My mother was often, you know, pregnant, having babies. Um, my mother had 11 kids. We're, we're nine now. We lost a couple when they were babies. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and well, I'm, I mean, I was too young, I think, to know what that means. I, I know it more intellectually than and my, my, mother, my mother knows it, of course, very differently. Um, but yeah, I... Yeah, we. I mean, we were we were kind of like a little cult, right? Because we were so many kids um, that we, you know, we had friends, but it's almost like they could never survive the gauntlet of like coming into our home, right? Like it was the same with like boyfriends, girlfriends. Like I don't know how many fist fights there were in our front yard with my brothers fighting 
all of my sisters, you know, boyfriends. And it was, it was just this wild, ruckus, really lucky um, community. And, you know, growing up on the reservation, it's not the same as like growing up in a neighborhood because your neighbors are also your family, you know. So like my aunt and uncle live next to me. Um, our cousins lived across or across the alleyway. I, you know, there was like uh, my my great grandma and my great aunt lived like catty corner to us, so right behind us, but like one house over. And so we we like busted out the fence so we could like go back and forth without having to go around, you know, <laughs> without having to go around the sidewalk. Um, like this, yeah. this sounds nice to me. Like, and maybe I'm overestimating. You tell me, was it too much? But I'm because I my, I live in this family where we're scattered all over the place and. We get together like twice a year, and there's a part of me that really hungers for having uh, more family around. I would love to have more access. Like, is it was it nice to grow up that way? Yeah, I mean, it was it was incredible. I mean, it's it, it was, you know, the reservation's a rough place. Like, there are a lot of places that are rough. Like, yes, we all we know all of the you know stereotypical ways of thinking about the reservation. There was a lot of violence. Um, you know, some of my my brothers have succumbed to those things in ways that I was lucky to not have. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you, I, I feel lucky. Of course, when you're younger, you don't realize it, you know, but I do feel lucky that, and I realize it right now, like that I understand what it means to take care of my elders, you know, that I understand what it means to listen, that I understand, you know, what it means to be able to think about myself, but not, not be like this giant ego because, I also realize the only way I can think about myself is in relationship to everyone else, to my family, you know, to my, my larger family, to my community. So, um, I, I mean, I know it's rare because I have been many places and I don't often like, you know, hear that or feel that or get that in return from, from some of the people that I'm around. Um, but it's also like that relationship has also been, lucky to to find and bring into the poetry world like I feel like the poetry family I have is it's an incredible family like it's uh it's a a poetry family of very rigorous love you know it's a place where we we love each other and we realize love is not this smooth beautiful thing like love is you know like care sometimes is not easy and shiny um and so it's been great to to be able to find those those people, those friends, those like family, those elders, even in poetry. Uh, I met my partner through poetry, also. Um, but yeah, so it, it, those ways that I grew up, you know, while while like I'm at one time saying um, it feels rare, I I also have been lucky to find those those same kinds of love and community and care out there in the, the poetry and writing world. Well, it feels like, I mean, it's poetry is a very specialized interest and it also like runs really deep. So if you share that in common with someone, I can see how there might be, um, it might facilitate a bond. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, maybe that's oversimplifying it, but it, it seems that way to me. And I think the same is true for writers in general. I, I certainly feel a, a sort of kinship with people I talk to on this show or writers that I know in my day-to-day life here in Los Angeles. Like, like we, if we don't 
connect with one another and look out for one another, like, all is lost. You know, like no one else is going to do it. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll just be strange and weird all by ourselves, which, <laughs> right. which would be unbearable, right? right. <laughs> it's already, it's already a little bit unbearable. <laughs> right. Right. So when did you know, like growing up on the reservation, did you have an inkling that you were interested in writing? Did, were you a, like a, a bookish kid? Yeah, I read a lot. I, you know, I read almost everything in our little library. Um, we didn't have a library on the res, but we would walk up to the, like the civic center area. So it was a long walk, especially when we were little, but we would, we would spend all day there. So, uh, because the basketball court was right next to it. So I just spent all day going back and forth. So the library opened up first, the rec center didn't open up to like nine or 10, but the library opened at eight. So I'd go to the library until the rec center opened, and I'd go play ball there. And then when it would close for, like, its lunch break, I would go back to the library, and then I would stay there, and then I'd go back to the rec. When the rec closed, I'd go back to the library, which stayed open much later. Um, yeah, I mean, I read a lot. My mom is a great reader. She just never had the time to read, you know, and so she was an incredible storyteller. My My father's really a strange, wonderful man, so he's always... He's always telling these wild, fantastical tales, which may or may not be true. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, and, you know, when you grow up like we did, we like we were poor. We didn't have a lot of money. My dad's, you know, scraped. My dad grinded his whole life to try to, you know, feed us all, get us what we needed. Um, and my mom was always taking care of us. So, you know, we were just always together. We were together in a very small space. Like we were in a two-bedroom house for a while, and that was just – you're just right there, so you might as well just tell each other stories or God with eleven kids. Yeah, or 11, lie to each other. Eleven each other. eleven kids in a two bedroom house. Yeah, and you know, it's uh it's interesting because like I have a very different perception of the body, I think. And some of it is like about like privacy. I just don't feel that uh that private because we grew up in that small space. And then some of it is also having been an athlete, you know, like you grow up, you're often in a locker room as an athlete. And so there's a very different, you know, way of thinking about, about the body or about, I don't have a lot of like shames about it. Although I have put on quite a few, uh, shelter in place pounds, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. You know, like, what do you, you got so at some point you're just going to have to get over it. Like what are yeah. like, you <laughs> got 11 you got 10 siblings you know and you're all yeah. packed into this house you're gonna have to just uh you know lose whatever neuroses you have about the body yeah yeah the worst uh we, we were just talking about this recently some of my siblings because a lot of my brothers and sisters stayed home so um like i'm coming back i i have a place in phoenix but i also have a place here um, in our our land and so um i come back I, like that's where we've been since this shelter in place. We've been here because my mother was ill before. So we actually arrived here before all of the shelter in place orders went, went out. But we were talking about one of the worst, one of the worst things about being all of us is that uh, whoever woke up earliest got the bowl of cereal with like the fresh milk. Cause we were always out of milk. Cause my mom always had babies, right? So there's the babies were always drinking milk, but we would, I mean, it would literally go like whoever woke up first got a bowl of cereal with the fresh milk. And then as you got later and later, we each had to reuse. I mean, this is the grossest thing. We each had to reuse that milk. Oh. And so, so sometimes you'd come and there'd just be just a little bit of milk left at the bottom of the bowl and you'd still try to 
pour your cereal, you know, right <laughs> on top. Because <laughs> we got WIC, we would get WIC coupons, so we, you know, it was always like eggs, peanut butter, cheese, cereal, and milk. Um, but they never let you get the good cereal, so you had to get like, had to have like a certain amount of sugar. But, but anyway, yeah, it's a growing up in a big family was. It's definitely made me who I am. Like I grew up playing team sports, so even now the way I think is definitely in conversation with with my friends um I, I think best when i'm you know constellating in a group of people so yeah and i i want to talk to you about basketball which figures uh it figures largely into your uh your youth and your life like you went off on to play college basketball right yeah and I, I knew early like i knew that basketball was the way i would do it um, I'm, I'm starting to write, write a lot more about that now, like using uh, James Baldwin's uh, concept of the gimmick. You know that he was making a comment that he knew most of the the black boys and girls in Harlem needed a gimmick to get out. He says that his was the church, um, others was entertainment. But for me, I, I knew right away, like that basketball. I knew I was good at it. Um, I knew it made me feel, you know something like freedom I probably didn't know to think about it that way but it definitely let me feel a kind of strength and freedom um and I didn't need anybody else to do it you know I mean yeah I played we played on the res but I spent most of my day I mean even out in this heat you know my mom said she used to always worry about me because I'd just take off in the morning and come back in the evening and just you know playing constantly so it it's definitely built a lot of the ways I, I think, you know, I knew that this, I knew we didn't have the money for me to go to college. Um, but I, you know, I knew, I knew this was one way I could do it. Um, yeah. And this, and then this book is, uh, I was able to, to write about it. Like I say, I'm writing about it more now and it began with this book and, uh, Kwame Dawes, who's an incredible person, um, and also poet, uh, but just an incredible like mentor and maker of spaces for people. But he is the first one who asked me to write something about it. And I did. And it became, it's become many things now. I have like a working on some essays and stuff, but some of the poems in this book came uh, from kind of an urging from Kwame to, to write about it. Mm. It's interesting. I guess you're saying that I'm thinking to myself, the ways in which, like literary culture, like the popular conception of literary culture can sometimes feel like inherently at odds with like jock culture or things like, you know, to write about sports might be like almost like taboo or something as a poet. Uh, like, or could, Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you have any sense of like maybe these two things shouldn't mix when in fact like to go there makes the work like doubly interesting or something? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Joy Harjo uh, once told me uh, when I first met her, she, we were talking about poems, and she was being, you know, she's incredibly generous. She was being generous, and she said, "Yeah, you know, I knew you played basketball or did something like that because when I read your work, it felt like a basketball game to me." And so I, I, I know that that physicality is there. Like that's language moves like that for me. I, I feel like writing to me is very much like basketball. It's about momentum. You know, it's a game of momentum. It's a game of the future. Like, you can't play two steps behind. You're always playing two steps ahead of what could happen, what might happen, which I think is pretty much how a line of poetry works, you know. Uh, you're writing it, and yet you're writing for the next discovery or the next turn or the next, you know, 
thing that surprises you or that, you know, whatever that energy is connecting uh, that's just just beneath the surface. But I found so many, so many basketball players, um, but also athletes, you know, like part of the, the group who feels the closest to me, like one, my partner wrestled in high school. She, uh, she was a, uh, she was on the men's wrestling team, even though, you know, she was a young woman, but uh, of course they didn't have an all women's team, but like my, you know, some of my best friends in poetry, Roger Reeves was a long distance runner. Um, you know, Dwayne bet Dwayne Betts and I talk a lot about basketball and now his boys are playing. And so we're, you know, we're, we're talking about it a lot. Christian Campbell was a, um, was a swimmer, you know, McAllister and, and so there are a lot more of us out there. I think, yeah, we've been taught a little bit to to keep it separate, um, but I do think you can see it in all of our work. You can see those ways that we've, you know, not just broken our bodies, but the ways that we've uh, like exceeded our bodies. You know, like I think the thing that the thing about basketball is that I I've reached those points, and especially the way that I trained. Like we were we were at the highest caliber. Um, but the way that I, you know, I've reached those points where it's like, I can't go on anymore. Like, I'm done. My body's going to quit. My mind is quitting on me. And then somehow you do. Like, somehow you go beyond. And and there's, like, something glorious in it, you know? Yeah. It's, well, I was, I was, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, uh, I don't know if you watched The Last Dance, that documentary on Michael Jordan that ran. It's been running during uh, during Shelter in Place, so like the perfect thing to watch because you're stuck at home and it's like a 10-part documentary but there was just i was watching a game where he has that food poisoning like the flu game from the finals oh yeah and i was just like thinking to myself like if you feel that shitty you're puking you know like you're just like like food poisoning illness is is brutal and to have to go play like a professional basketball game less than 24 hours after the onset um like that sort of thing. I think that's kind of what you're talking about. Like you don't think you can do it. And then you get out there and what did he scored like 40 points? <laughs> did, did just, yeah. Fine. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, maybe, I mean, not all poetry has to be about this, right? Like not all poetry is about painful things, wounds, harmful things, but, but I do think, you know, language operates in that way. It's like, how could I ever possibly explain to you what this feels like? And yet somehow we cobble together words or we, you know, at cobble, maybe not being precise enough term or maybe being too narrow, but you, you somehow manage to gather a kind of language you need to, you know, let you feel like you've expressed it somehow, maybe not perfectly, of course, like, you know, what is perfect, but it somehow lets you release a little bit of that energy or it lets someone else be, be drawn to it. And so definitely not the same kind of uh, physical exhaustion, but I think certainly there are ways that uh, telling a story or telling, you know, just the telling itself can be a certain kind of exhaustion that is in relation, I think, to some of the things I, I have felt on a basketball court. Well, and not only that, like the discipline, I think the, like the athlete's discipline and the writer's discipline, there can be some crossover there. Like I think one can prepare a person well for the, for the other. Um, I think, yeah, I think yeah. I, I've talked to a lot of writers on this show who are runners. I feel like a lot of us need to, like, hmm. 
we need to like mood regulate with exercise, you know, and just, yeah. it's part of the ritual, you know, like they go hand in hand, you run and then you write or you write and then you run. Um, you know, that makes some sense to me. And then the more that you dig into it, there really are a lot of writers who have an athletic background, um, you know, somewhere either in their childhood or, or even into college years like you. So where did you, you went to old dominion to play? Yeah. In Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia. How did you wind up there? Like, I guess you got recruited. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they were on the verge. They had just broken into the 64. So they're a very storied program. Um, but they had the year before I went, they had just broken into the tournament and they hadn't in quite some time. Um, and so that was exciting to me to think about that, to think about a team that, you know, that I could contribute to or that I imagined my energy could join that energy and make something happen. And it was, I mean, it was a long haul, but in my mind then, and I mean, I think this is something, of course, that America does to so many of us is that it requires we go so far from home and from our family to do the things that will make us successful. You know, it's something I still am wrapping my head around. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's tough to be away. It's t It was tough for me to be away from my family, from my community. Uh, I felt alone in a lot of things, even though, you know, I had my team. But it's like, you know, uh, there I lost a lot of people while I was there. And not just the loss itself and not being able to come home, but just strange things, right? Like to say, okay, when you're mourning, you, you cut your hair. And then to like have to figure out how I was going to do that. You know, and what like that's how, like in the Mojave tradition, you cut your hair in mourning. Yeah, and so you know, trying to figure out what to do. And I remember I went just to, I went to like a supercuts with one of my teammates, and we had asked the woman like I needed to save the hair, and she was like, "What?" And, and she like was refusing to let me <laughs> let me have my own hair. Um, and she's <laughs> like, "No, I'm going to sweep it up." But she swept it up with like all of the like other people's hair. And uh. so I remember we took it in. I mean, you know, it's, it seems trivial and it's funny now, but, but there were things like that, you know, that just didn't, and nobody there knew what a native was. I mean, we were, I mean, like I lived in a, apartments called the Powhatan apartments oh and yet God. nobody knew anything about natives. Um, and so it was just, it was kind of crazy. The, the only native person I ever met there was this really tall blonde headed man who had braids and like this kind of a crazy, crazy concoction of regalia that he'd wear to into class. It was crazy. Um, and I was like, that dude's not native, <laughs> but I'm like, I don't even, I think that's from like, you know, that Seminole, that whatever he's wearing there, that looks like, I don't know what's happening. Um, so what he had like, this is like a, a blonde haired, like, you know, whatever, uh, ethnicity guy like trying to co-opt like native culture yeah it was so crazy and I had him in a history class and he, he was like trying to be my friend and I was like no man <laughs> no I knew a guy <laughs> this is weird <laughs> yeah no I knew a guy in uh in college not well but like you know it was like one of these people you'd uh cross paths with socially and I went to school in Boulder where like it's kind of hippied out and native culture co-opting that stuff happens in a place like Boulder and he was like, he was like really into that too, like to a degree yeah. where it was like, what are you doing? Like you're, you're. Well, it's so weird. Like coming from the res, like I never met a fake Indian before because <laughs> you're on the res. Like what? There's, there's no fake Indians here, <laughs> you know? And then suddenly 
I, I go, yeah. So it was, I mean, it was tough. Like it was great to, in my mind, it was the only way I could, it was the only way I could, I had a chance at, and at what I didn't know yet, but I knew I needed to get away, which I think is a shame now, but as a young, I was, I was really young because I, I had like moved up in grade. So I think I had just turned, I think I turned 17 that September. So I was like 16 coming out. So I was young. And I thought that that's what I needed to do to be successful was I needed to go away. So I, I went as far away as I could. Um, and then, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, there's something really sad, I think, about that. And I, you know, that that's just the way the situation in is, is that we have to we have to be taken so far away from all of the things we are. Yeah. Uh, well, I You know, as to, you were you were talking earlier about just like the the basics of your youth growing up in that house and your family being all around you, like in the immediate sense, but also in your, in your neighborhood, like, you know, living catty corner from great grandparents and aunts and uncles and all this stuff. Like that was the way people and societies were typically organized until relatively recently. It was only like a century ago that things started to get diffuse on a, on a wide scale. If I have my history, like semi-correct. So I think it's the more natural way of things for humans to have these uh, family associations and to have this kind of closeness and to, you know, suddenly have to move 3,000 miles away for a job or for a school opportunity. Um, you know, it, it's, un, it's an unnatural mode to be in. And I think that the consequences of um, that type of diffusion are something that we're still grappling with, like not only as individuals, but like as a society, like it's not necessarily healthy. Yeah. And it, it's really crazy. I, I mean, I'm struck by this a lot. Um, I mean, especially of course with COVID, right? Like that, that we don't have, as I'm saying, we loosely generally as Americans don't really have a connection to our elders and that's just become clear with the ways we've accepted certain quote facts about COVID, you know, like who, who would who we thought it affected only first. Um, and so it's, you know, I think it's part of that structure that pulls us so far away from our, from our elders. Like the idea that when, when someone is sick, when an elder is sick, that you are being asked to, leave your whole life in order to go back and take care of them. You know, that's such a, it's such a crazy thing, you know, that, that, and I'm, again, I'm not saying this in like a value judgment way. I think this was pretty systemic in how some of these things were developed, um, you know, within our society, but it's really interesting. You know, like I say, even before the shelter in place was, you know, ordered, my partner and I came back here because my mother was ill. My mother is uh, severely diabetic. And so she had uh, a diabetic ulcer that, um, that like had a bone infection. So her body went septic. So we rushed here in a state of emergency before the state of emergency. Um, and it was just so interesting to, to realize like how, yeah, just like who were willing to, yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm going sideways now, but it is it is just a shame. I think some of the ways that that we are we're asked to be successful and and what those things uh, draw us away from that are 
probably, you know, much more important. Mm. Well, I'm thinking too, like the value system that we have in our culture, um, especially like broader American culture, which places such an emphasis on the glory of youth, you know, like everything is sort of seems like funneled in that direction. Like this is what we, we prize youth, you know, people are like Botoxing and having plastic surgery in an attempt to sort of thwart age and whatever, you know, whatever way they possibly can. And there is uh, a lack of appreciation for uh, people that are older. I think a lot of times in our culture, people who are older become afterthoughts or they're shunted away into homes or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we don't, uh, I I think that there's, I mean, obviously if somebody's, you know, got a a serious health condition and their care requirements are so intense that you need round the clock treatment, like I get it, you know, you might need to be in an assisted living facility, but I'm talking more about just the ways in which maybe um, older people are too often forgotten or underappreciated um, like that too feels like some sort of fissure in the way we organize our societies that needs to be corrected. And I guess a question um, might be like, you know, for my own curiosity is like, is it any different uh, on the res? Like is, is Mojave culture better about that than the broader American culture in terms of how it relates to uh, its elders? Oh, definitely. Um, I think just even my Akamel at them, side and then here my Mojave side yeah we we definitely take care of our our elders I mean we also like joke like just because you're old doesn't mean you're an elder right like you know elders are I mean they have so much to tell us you know that we can learn from and in in the case here like they have our language like there are just a few who speak the Mojave language um yeah I mean it's a place where you learn you learn to listen uh but also I think you know, like my teacher Hubert McCord is like he's my my uncle too, but he's the funniest, smartest person I know. Like I, his imagination. I know, like when people think of me as a writer, like they're like, oh, like her imagination. Like, but this man, <laughs> this man's imagination is like I couldn't even like put a dent in his. Like the way he thinks, how curious he is. Like still, even considering everything that's happened to to him and to our people and to our language over time I mean it's it's amazing and I feel like I've learned so much from him more than I have any teacher you know Mm. Um, all of these kind of structured ways of knowledge and then I think like this is a this is a different knowledge like and it can't even be categorized I think by the word you know knowledge Um, but yeah we definitely you know like uh, the the Fort Mojave tribe as a whole um declared a state of emergency from COVID, but our, our tribal government, you know, took really good care and they're very protective of our elders. Um, like I'm here now, but I haven't been to see Hubert because I can't go on and off. He lives in the Arizona village. Um, but we can't just go on and off. So, and then my aunt lives on the California village where, where I grew up. Um, and so they're like protected and we can't go in and out to see them, but they're you know, they bring them food, they bring them water, they give them medical care, all of these things. So, mm. And when you say Hubert was your teacher, do you mean he taught you the Mojave language? Because you speak Mojave, correct? Yeah, I'm still a learner. I mean, you know, I, I'll probably always be a learner and, and being a second, like Mojave is my second language. Like there's always going to be so much I, 
don't know and at some point won't be able to even explore the possibility of knowing uh, because, you know, my teacher will be gone. But, but yeah, he's, um, you know, I grew up around it. I spent, I grew up a lot taking care of my great grandmother who was, um, she was a double amputee and so she needed a lot of help. And so my aunt, my aunt lived with her, but I was, I was basically their legs. Like I did all their errands, you know, helped them clean, helped take care of her. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I grew up around the language. My mom doesn't speak it. Um, and my dad's family speaks Spanish. So it was really working with Hubert and just spending time with him. And for a, maybe like around five years, like I spent almost every day with him, you know, mornings and come back in the afternoon and come back in the evening. And I taught alongside him. Um, yeah. And so, and I'm still, you know, learning from him, still trying to help him record the things that he wants to make sure are, you know, here for his family when he goes. Well, I mean, how many people, I mean, the preservation of, of, uh, these languages feels like vital work. Like I, every once in a while I'll come across a story of some, you know, indigenous culture, um, that, you know, the language has been like fully lost. And it's like such a devastating thing to think about that, um, a language of a people could become extinct. And so, um, I guess like, like, do you have a sense of how many people are still able to speak it? Is there like a project underway? I guess it sounds like that's what Hubert's work is, is to try to preserve it. And you're a part of that as well. Yeah. And I mean, the, the tribe has a formal, uh, like tribal government program that they're working on. And I think, uh, their goal is to utilize the structure of the Montessori school. And so they have, I think a couple, um, Navajo linguists here, from Northern Arizona University, which is just up the way, uh, working with them. I used to work for the tribe. Now I, I work just with Hubert. Um, and so we're, you know, we felt like we built a, a bunch of large questions and now we want to kind of continue those. And right now we're largely working on his songs. So he's the last fluent Mojave speaker and singer of the songs. And so we're we have a collection of 235 and there originally were 420 in, in just one song cycle. And so we, we have a lot of work to do still. <laughs> um, well, it's yeah. good. It's a good thing you have that microphone that you're talking into. You gotta, <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Record. You got to get him into the studio. <laughs> yeah. We, we make our own little studio in his living room. So, so we get all the, all the, uh, ambient noises i guess of of that are happening around us so <laughs> so what uh what did you study in school like when you went to school you're playing ball and old dominion you guys went to the final four right like you guys were good yeah we were good we were ranked number one number two um i studied uh english and like and women i did some women's studies classes too i wasn't i mean i wasn't much of a student to be honest just i i mean i liked to read and stuff but um, yeah, I think one year, one year I had, um, I got hit in the eye in practice before the season started and it severed the orbital artery right beneath my eye. 
and um, it was like a an awful, like grotesque looking injury. And so like my eye, of course, filled with blood. It was like huge, you know, like it, it felt like the how swollen it got was weighing my head down. And so I remember going to, I ha- you know, I went to my classes and I walked into my first class and one of my teachers like looked at me and she like turned away and, and she's like, you know what, like, like you don't have to sit in class. And so like I would take, I mean, I ended up, I had a black eye the entire year. That's how bad the injury was. And I had to wear rec specs the whole the whole year, and I actually started the season season late. It was such a bad injury, but it's like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, just not as good. Um, but but yeah, I would like take that and just run with it. So I was like, yes, I don't have to go to class, you know. So I remember like after the it the injury healed a little bit and didn't look as terrible, I would go into class and kind of hold my head and let my instructor know, hey, I got a little bit of a headache, and they were like, oh, please, you know, go home and rest. You guys have a game coming up. So I was kind of manipulative with those things. I wasn't a great student. I I was skipping class once, and I didn't know that my teacher had told my – had, like, called the office, my basketball office, to let them know. So I remember I got a message from someone in the class and was like, hey, you should really come to class. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go today. They're like, no, I really think you need to come. And so I, I can't remember the exact exchange, but I ended up coming. I was about 30 minutes late, and my coach was waiting outside the door of the classroom. She had come to check to see if I was in class. You know, So I, I was like not a great student back then. But, um, yeah, and I don't even know that I, I – even in you know grad school I did well, but I, I just have a different way of learning, I think. <laughs> you know, I have a different way of expressing um, <clears throat> what is knowledge, so – <laughs> I, might, I, I might too. I was like, I was, I was a good student. I always say this. I was like a good student until 10th grade. <laughs> like I peaked so early. And then after that, I was just like, I'm over this. I think I just got tired of like the, the traditional structured education system. You know, like it just, I just didn't want to do it. I was, I, I, the word that comes to mind is tired. I was just tired. I needed a break. Yeah. Like, and it, and it's it makes crazy. It's like a job. Like it's like a night. It's like a job. You're working as many hours as a job when we're in school and how much of it is wasted. Right. And like, and like for all those years too, it's like you start when you're four years old. No wonder. Yeah. I was, I was 18 years old. I was like, give me a break. I want to take a year off. And like, I don't know, just like work a job and. Yeah. How old are your children? Uh, nine and five, or I guess almost 10 and five. But isn't it crazy? Like to drop them off at school. I think about my nieces and nephews all the time. I'm like, it's seven in the morning. And he's six years old. Like, where are we taking him? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's no, the, crazy. And like everyone's like freaking out about this homeschooling stuff during uh, COVID. And I'm really not. I'm like, you know what? They're at a, I mean, I guess if they were maybe a little older, I'd be a bit more concerned. But at this age, I'm kind of like, you know what? I want them to do some stuff and I want them to be in, engaged and, you know, I want them to be learning. But as long as they know their timetables, they'll be all right. Yeah, like just relax. Like they're kids, you know? They're going to be fine. Yeah, I think the harder part is for, for parents who are working, you know? Yeah. And like, uh, again, another like societal structure, the yeah. school system. It's, yeah, that part of it is a mess, you know? Like my, uh, like today's the last day of school. So like they have they have had like teleschool or whatever over the computer, but once the... Once that's over with, then 
we're sort of we're sort of screwed. Um, so you go to old dominion for graduate school as well, right? Like do you, did you get your, yeah, I came back. So I was, I was still playing, but I, I tore my ACL and my meniscus and my MCL. So I was training to go back overseas. Um, I had like signed a contract. So yeah. And I ended up just tearing my ACL in a pickup game. What do you mean? Um, Wait, wait, you were playing pro ball overseas. Yeah. And so I, that's how I ended up back at Old Dominion was I, uh, a lot of us would come and train in the summer there before we went to wherever we were going to play overseas. Um, and so we, I was there and there was, I think there were maybe five or six of us who were alumni who'd graduated and we were there playing. And also like there are so many NCAA rules. And so there are certain times in the summer where, where the athletes can play with alumni. Um, and so we were, we were running a game and I was done playing. We'd been playing for hours and I'd already like cut my tape off. I was, you know, a lot of us had our shoes off. We were just sitting there. And then Cheryl Swoop came in. She came in with one of our coaches. Cheryl Swoop came in and was like, do y'all want to run another game? And so like dummies, we were like, yeah. So we're, we just, and I shouldn't have, but I just like, I was already cold. You know, I hadn't stretched. So I just put my shoes back on and went out there to play. And I just made a really simple move and, Popped your name. You know, yeah, I just felt it like shift left to right in a way that it had never shifted before. Um, and it just kind of, but I, I had like injured it before, which, I, you know, could have, like I'd broken my leg before in a game uh, and like it hyperextended backward. And so it, it could have been like an injury that, you know, was just waiting to become something worse a few years later. But anyway, that happened. And that's when I, I knew I was going to rehab there. Um, I was really lucky that I had like good friends there. So the the surgeon, she was a surgeon of the women's national team at the time, said that she could get me in and help me work with like insurances and stuff. So she did my surgery and I was rehabbing there. And some of my former teachers had found out and they reached out and said, you know, while you're here, why don't you like consider joining the program? But I didn't have a portfolio or anything. And so they let me into just the workshops like I did something really weird I took three workshops in one like a, a poetry a fiction and a non creative nonfiction. and I didn't really know what I was doing in any of them but they seemed to have some faith in me so during that that semester I was rehabbing and I also built this little portfolio of work to get me into the program and I was I mean I loved it I just I loved writing and I decided to to stick with it. Um, And I'd also been a little bit tired. I lost some, like, family members and people who were really important to me while I was in, like, Europe and Asia. And it was just really hard. Um, And I loved being over there. I just just got to the point where I loved basketball, but it was not, it was not, like, the most important thing to me. It may never have been. It was just something I, I really loved and enjoyed. But there were other things that that carried more weight. So when you took these workshops, was it evident to you then that poetry was the thing that you responded to the most or did you respond to it the most? I just kind of fell into it. I was still learning a little bit. I did a, I did a double, um, a double thesis. I wrote a thesis in fiction, short stories, and then a thesis in poetry. But yeah, I mean, I guess I've said this before, like, 
it's not that I learned how to write poetry. I, I learned how to read it. And I think that was the key for me as I never knew how to read poetry. Um, I started reading it most while I was in Europe uh, as an athlete because I was just trying to find books in translation. And so a lot of a lot of times my friends would bring me books or I'd find books in like in Turkey. You know, I found, like the only books I found in English in some of the used bookstores were were poetry. So it was during in, in my MFA, like if anything, like, you know, the most valuable thing is that I learned how to read uh I learned how to read poetry, so it became something possible for me or where I was possible. What What do you mean by you learned how to read poetry? Like, you just... I mean, I have some incredible teachers. Like, I, I can't even imagine who or what I would be right now if I hadn't been where I was. Uh, Tim Siebel's, Luisa Gloria. So, you know, I had, like, the luck, which most people don't, is, like, both of my main poetry professors were writers of color. Um, and then my fiction faculty was, uh, Janet Peary, who had worked really closely with Paula Gunn Allen, uh, a native writer who I didn't even know at the time because I didn't know any native writers at the time, um, because I'd never read any and, uh, Sherry Reynolds, like a kind of a Southern writer. Um, but I, I mean, I had like incredible teachers, so they, they loved what they did. They loved teaching. And so, uh, there was there wasn't a lot of prescription put on me, and even as we read, there wasn't. I mean, there was a real great focus on, you know. Yes, there was craft, but there was also the craft. I, I feel like anyway, like the craft of emotion, you know, and the craft of of language itself versus you know enjambment or the line break or anaphora or these things. Um, I mean, of course, I learned all of those, but but even now as a teacher, those aren't the things that I. Uh, I'd never lead with, with that, you know, like difference between craft and aesthetics and all of these different things like they're are really important. Um, and I feel like I, I got a, a really generous, um, invitation into like learning how to read poetry, which in one way is just how to enjoy language, how to understand where it comes from. You know, I'm really like, I write very much with like etymology as a lens and so, if, like, even to look through my poems, maybe not at first because there's a certain maybe narrative rhythm or you you don't see it, but, like, there are so many constellations of etymology happening in each poem, you know, like, very intentionally these kind of, like, strata of, of what is language. Um, and I, I received that there. So I learned how to read that way, and it's become one of the ways I write. And then, like you said, you you said the word emotion a little bit ago, you know, and and having that be a part of the work, if I if I heard you correctly, and uh, is that right? I mean, is that something that you you learn there too, in terms of how you learn to read poetry and and um, like kind of figure out what it what it was that you were responding to most? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I mean, language is emotional, right? If we, we we've learned to you know, we've learned to like separate what is utility from, you know, what is this luxury of emotion or the intellect. But, but I mean, emotions are extremely utilitarian. Um, and, and the ability to, or, or the intentionality of being willing to experience them much less, 
uh, to imagine expressing them, you know, in language or in touch or something else is, is for me one of the, the pulses of poetry. Like that's, um, yeah, I mean, and I, I don't know, I use the word love a lot. I use the word, I talk about feeling all the time. Like my students are like, I never say, you know, what does it mean? But I'm like, well, how does it feel to you? How are you experiencing it? And so, um, I think that's good. I think because I feel I, I guess I'm thinking to myself about work that I don't respond to, like whatever it would be, whether it's poetry or fiction or nonfiction, whatever it is, if there's something that's not registering, it, you know, there could be any number of reasons. But at, at the top of the list tends to be this feeling of absence around emotion or intimacy. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be like a one for one intimacy where the person's just like telling me their life story, but it. Do you know what I'm getting at? I guess it's, it's something sort of ineffable, but I feel like in, you know, in your collection and even when we were talking earlier about the cover of your book, like that's the way I respond uh, to to this collection and to the just like the physical book object itself. Like I definitely feels like there's no punches pulled. Like this is you, and I feel like that's really important, um, one way or another. Yeah, I think some of that happens, too, in the language, in, like, the, that constellating, you know. I mean, I, I read a lot of what I, I mean, I don't know, good or bad, what is, that's so subjective, right? But I've, I've read a lot of works that that I just couldn't stick with or that I don't know how to read yet, you know, or that maybe maybe something will change in me or I'll learn it a different way to be able to come back to that work and find something new in it. And so I think some of that is... You know, I think it's an important part of our literary worlds, you know, because I think there's something really dangerous about the streamlining of things, um, you know, or about the ways we're getting used to like certain uh, almost becoming like performances of what is political or the performance of what is um, what is outrage or rage or anger. Do you mean do you mean in literary culture itself or do you mean like in the wider culture and like the media? I'm, yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean the literary culture, but I think it's definitely connected to those things, you know. Um, and so I, it's it's an interesting time right now, I think, to consider what our lexicons are for certain kinds of grief, you know. And, and, and I mean, the lexicon, like linguistic lexicon, but also even our gestural lexicons, you know, like what does it mean that that certain parts of our grief have become so public? You know, and then so if we're thinking about these public griefs, like what can still be private in those or what can still be intimate in some of the ways, you know, we're seeing death and grief and rage. Um, mm. But, yeah, it's just I mean, there's so many, so many things happening. And that's it does feel lucky that one of the ways I work is with with language, you know, poetry and um you know, language is at once like the the archive of those things, and it's also in some ways like the prophecy of those things. Yeah, I mean, I feel like too, like it's. I've had this conversation, as you can imagine, more than once in recent weeks about what it's like to have a book come out in this particular time period. And you know, for a spell, I was talking to authors who were simply sheltering, and it was like, wow, what's it like to have a book come out when you can't go on tour and everybody's inside and wearing face masks and like, you know, hoarding Clorox wipes or <laughs> whatever, whatever we're doing. And then, you know, then the events of the last couple of weeks are added on top of that. And, um, 
it's just an incredible time. And there is a part of me when I was reading your, uh, your book that was feeling, um, like, you know, there's something, there's definitely intersections between some of the things you're addressing in the book and some of the issues that we're facing now, you know, and, um, like, is that something that's crossed your mind? Like, did you, like, have you thought about that or been asked about that as, as the book has come out into the world? I mean, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's something that like, just for example, police brutality, um, I mean, that's been a part of indigenous life from the beginning, you know, like we, a lot of people right now are talking about those connections of, of like the beginning of police and then indigenous uprisings and, uh, slave patrols and, um, you know, those intersections. And so it, it's, you know, in some ways, I think this book will always be, quote, timely, because I don't know that some of these things are necessarily going to to disappear. I think things will shift. But I mean, it's interesting to, again, like the absurdity of being, for me, the absurdity of being an indigenous person in this country. It's like, wait a minute, I'm a part of this, but it was built like against me meaning like so that I would die or that my people would die or that we would no longer exist. Like it's just crazy, right? Like I don't even have like the articulation of it. And then to think about, you know, the, the descendants and like the lineage of enslaved peoples, like to, to think like how, like what it means to be who we are in this country or in certain structures. Right. Like I think even, even like, and I'm not trying to equate any of these, but I'm just, just thinking like, you know, I have like friends with disabilities who like there are spaces clearly meant for them not to be in those spaces, you know, like spaces that couldn't even imagine them being there or that have made it clear, like they don't want them there. Like, so it's, it's just, it's interesting thinking about what it means to be timely or, or, or what's changed or what hasn't. And, and is it, is it only nation or is it simply humankind or, you know, is it language itself? Um, yeah. And so like in terms of the collection, like just, I think the idea of just being post-colonial is, you know, interesting to think about right now. And while communities are, are joining together and to speak out, you know, for black lives and, for Black Lives Matter and things and to to kind of realize like what is what is what is the colonial, what is the colony, what are the ways we've participated in it, what are the ways that we can resist it? Can we reorganize some of these things? What does it mean to do that? Um, yeah, and I, I guess for me too with with this book I mean, something I'm really trying hard to do is to, Im- again, imagine, and I, and I don't have the language for it because I don't know that I can imagine it yet, but I'm, I'm looking toward that anyway in terms of thinking, you know, how can I exist? How can the loves that I have exist not against? You know, like it's crazy that to think most things I've I've done have been against either a projection of who I am or a reality of who I'm supposed to be. So like, what if, what if I'm not always 
exerting those energies against something. And so how do I create those those spaces or those conditions where where love is the condition or desire is the condition or joy is the condition? And so and I mean there have been many many people writing toward this and thinking about this for for a long time and so that's one of the the things about this kind of shelter in place is that I'm I'm trying to just to read and listen a lot. Um, I haven't done a lot of these interviews. I, I mean, this week I've, I think I've done like three or four total since the book came out. Um, and so it's been nice to be a little bit quiet and just to, to learn how to listen in a different way. Hmm. Yeah. I've been trying, I feel like I've, I've been having these conversations obviously. And, uh, at least, you know, lately trying to talk around some of these issues or talk through, um, to, to make sense of things. But then there has also been uh, a lot of reading almost to the point where I get spun around. Like, I think it can be very easy with like the, the velocity of information yeah. uh, to get disoriented. Like I'm very impressionable. I think a lot of us are, cause you're trying to make sense of rapidly developing a rapidly developing situation with a lot of complexity to it. And, uh, man, it's not an easy feat to synthesize all that is coming at, uh, at a person through a computer screen, especially. Yeah. It's crazy that like, I feel like the news is almost like an illness right now. I mean, you know, I feel physically sick watching it Yeah, and, and yet I'm glued to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I want to know I'm waiting for something to change or I'm trying to, and like, you know, the news cycle, it's, I'm reading the same thing over and over again all day long with very few changes, you know, but, but the way it gets into like our bodies and our minds, like my partner is like, don't tell me anything or like, there'll be a, you know, I'll say, Hey, do you have any capacity to hear a few things? And I might be able to like give her the highlights, but she's just made a choice and that, like that she can't let that news reel, like you're saying the velocity of that, like she's not willing just to let it hurtle through her right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. No, I mean, people have different approaches. Like I've actually, I, I, I was actually a junkie for a long time. And I felt like I was, there's kind of a part of me that's like, I can take this. Like I'm one of these mm -hmm. people who like, I can process the news. I kind of liked to do it as a, as a project of like media literacy and also like, I think there was some part of me that felt like a sentinel, like on watch, you know, like I, I've got, yeah, like that I, makes sense, man. Yeah, yeah. I gotta, I gotta do this. Like I gotta, like not, you know, not everybody's got the inclination to do this and I'm going to do it so that there's somebody trying to sift through all this, like the, the good, bad and the ugly, uh, to try to find, you know, maybe to try to get in the vicinity of the truth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And no, but that makes sense that that sentinel, like, or, or it becomes your role and you feel like it is your duty. Yeah. And it's I think, there's, I mean, I think there's something to that, but I got to the point, especially when it came to, you know, digital media, social media, where I, I became, it was just too much. I was too addicted, um, which I think is the, the real issue. Like I was just, I was in too deep. <laughs> I, had to, yeah. I had to get out. And so I think, you know, it's not that I don't engage with it at all, but I just, I had to curtail um, my engagement because it was becoming too much even for me. And I'm somebody who's kind of predisposed to, to do this stuff, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of, 
thought that sentinel analogy made it's a good one well i uh i've, I've enjoyed talking with you uh i i want to congratulate you again on the reception that this uh, collection has received it is a it's a it's wonderful to see and i'm glad we got a chance to spotlight it in the uh book club this month we don't we don't do enough um spotlighting of poetry collections and this is a wonderful one um to buck that trend so kudos yeah, no i appreciate it uh, yeah gracias. and thanks for making the time like i i know this must be a lot of work and especially just i think i'm just always uh, amazed by by finding people who are still able to perform their tasks <laughs> especially like you know this is like work and it's also creative for you and so like how are we able to do that so i appreciate you just you know sharing the work but also sharing your time and i hope that that uh i'm gonna wish you i'm gonna wish your family energy now that the the last day of school has been here <laughs> yeah like all the all the caffeine just all the caffeine come to me that's what i mean yeah, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, guys, there you have it. That is Natalie Diaz. Her new collection is called Postcolonial Love Poem. It is available now from Grey Wolf Press. You can find Natalie Diaz online at nataliegermaindiaz.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. Track her down. The collection, once again, is called Postcolonial Love Poem. Go get your copy immediately. If you like this program and you want to support it, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Every single episode of this show is offered freely, so your support makes a difference. Don't forget that this podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. If you want to get the app, the app is free. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. If you would like to write to me, if you have some feedback, you want to share some thoughts or tell me a story, my email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. So I will be back on Wednesday with another episode. Let's see who my guest is going to be. Can I figure this out ever? believe my guest is going to be Brian Allen Carr. So many good ones in the pipeline. I've talked to a lot of people recently. So Brian Allen Carr coming up on Wednesday. He is the author of a novel called Opioid Indiana. And I had a great talk with him. Otherwise, stay safe. Be well. Be sane. Register to vote. Get yourself set up for, you know, an absentee ballot or voting by mail or whatever you need to do. Take care of that now. That's my public service announcement. Wear a mask. Register to vote. Be a good citizen. Take care of the people who need taking care of the most. Read some books. What else? Eat some good food. Bake something. Make some cookies. Muffins are good. I like muffins.